0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal.
1: 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4,
0: 3, 2. 1, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space Nuts.
1: Astronauts
0: report it feels good. Hello. Once again, thanks for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast episode 252. Good grief. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host. Joining me again and, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer-at-large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am fine, thank <laughs> you, sir.
1: How are you? I'm very well, thanks. You've got good news, haven't you, with uh, a paperback out and things of that sort. Oh,
0: yes, yes. Uh, I have uh, finally finished uh, the the uh, the entire process of, of getting the book um, organised uh, the, the type settings done the spell checkers done the um, the whole proofreading process is over I think it's been proofread three times and then uh, we got it up to the publisher we got the cover everything's ready and it will be released on May the 31st in paperback uh, this is the Hitler paradox and it will it's available now if you want to download the ebook now I, you're going to love this, Fred. But uh, I, I, we got everything done, everything checked, and yesterday I just thought oh, I'll just see, you know, what's going on. It's it's popped up on Amazon in less than 24 hours of being sent to my distributor, which is quite an, an extraordinary. It usually takes a while. Uh, that's in Australia and in um, uh, at Amazon.com, uh, and um, I, I thought I'll just have a quick look and see how it all sort of came up on the on the interface and I started reading through. I think there's a there's a spelling error in the very first sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Never saw it. Never saw it. No one saw it. So oh I'm gonna, I can't be bothered fixing it. It no, no. cost me $25 to, to fix one letter. I'm not going to worry about it. But, uh, yeah, it's out there. Um, it's got rather a striking cover. And, again, I say thanks to my brother Steve for uh, coming up with the concept. It is, um, yeah, you won't miss it. It's uh, it's 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 quite um, in your face, but that's what I wanted because uh, th- this is a, a story that centres around uh, uh, well three three or four eras. It's uh, it, it's it's sort of going to go all over the place in terms of time. Yes, it is a time travel story, but ba- the basis is that in uh, the twenty two hundreds, time travel is a reality. Uh, The United Nations of the year 2213, which is where the story starts, uh, has decided that um, we're going to use this machine to right the wrongs of history. And the first thing they want to fix is uh, the greatest travesty in humanity, and that is the Holocaust. And they decide the only way to do that is to kill Adolf Hitler before he became a somebody. And, of course, they fail. And when they fail it uh, awakens uh, a new and more horrifying enemy, and that's basically the story. It's a race against time between uh, what uh, the people of the 2200s are doing against the enemy that is in the future and they have to deal with it in the past. So that's how it all turns out. And, uh, you know, Fred, um, last week I read a post uh, because I did a sort of preemptive notice on Facebook that the, the book was soon to be released, and someone said, "Oh, great! Can't wait to hear the, you know, to f- f- uh, read the twist in this one." And I thought, "Oh, okay. <laughs> Did I put one in? Better think of one." <laughs> so I rewrote the end. Oh, Last there week. you go. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, so it's um, it's out there. It's ready to roll. Have a look for it. The Hitler Paradox. You'll find it. It'll start to pop up in more and more places. It'll be in all the regular um, bookshops, online, and ultimately in bookstores. Uh, but, yeah, let me know what you think. And, yes, I do plan to put an audio version out. I've just got to get around to recording it. It's mm. a big job mm. and a lot of hard work, and um, I hate editing which is why I like podcasting, because we don't worry about that kind of thing.
1: We don't. Somebody uh, else does. That
0: aside, aside, uh, let's talk about today's show, and uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we've been talking about Mars a lot and uh, the the rover that NASA's put there, Perseverance and the Ingenuity helicopter, but uh, now it's China's turn. They're about to land a probe on Mars and send out their own rover, So uh, we'll talk about that. A new form of aurora has been discovered. Uh, They, uh, Just like has happened a few times recently, Fred, in our discussions, they found this in old data that they were reviewing and went, oh, hang on a minute, what's all this then? Uh, And, yes, a new form of aurora and proof that life-related molecules can form in the cold, dark vacuum of space. So uh, we'll look into that. And audience questions from Doug in Ontario, and Sandy in Victoria, uh, which we will get to a little later in the program, but uh first, Fred uh notwithstanding the achievements of perseverance and ingenuity and NASA, China uh, is um, has been orbiting Mars from about well, the same time or a bit earlier than uh, the NASA was there in this case, and now they are ready to uh, to land on the Martian surface, and if they do they will achieve history because thus far only two nations, Russia and the United States, have achieved that.
1: That's correct, yeah. the um, So it, the story goes back, and we covered all this back in February, when um, <clears throat> mm. Tianwen-1 became the second of the... Actually, we covered it last July. Tianwen-1 became the second of the three space probes that were launched to Mars back in July. Um, uh, the third was... Perseverance, perseverance. Of course, in February, went straight into re- into entering Mars's atmosphere. It didn't go into orbit. It was meant as a straightforward lander. So the seven minutes of terror uh, were right at the end of that long voyage. Uh, but everything went perfectly well, and we've got, uh, of course, as we all know, we've got both a helicopter and a, a rover on the surface. Um, however, uh, the Tianwen one probe and by the way tianwen means questions to heaven or maybe quest quest for heavenly truth that's another way of putting it it's a nice name yeah. comes from, comes Well-known. from a lot a long uh, poem uh, one of the great works of chinese literature um so uh, tianwen 1 has on board its own lander uh, and the plan was always to orbit the planet for 3 or 4 months um just to make sure that everything's working and also to select uh, a suitable landing site because the orbiter has cameras on board and all the rest of it. So uh, that's, uh, that was always expected to be May and it's May now. And the thinking is that within the next couple of weeks, perhaps, uh, we'll see news of the lander going down to the surface. Uh, and I think after just a few days, it will, uh, it will unload the rover, the rover itself is called Zhurong, if that's how you pronounce it. It's named after an ancient fire god in Chinese mythology. They're all great names. So Zhurong will—it's mm. um, a little six-wheeled rover. It looks a lot like, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the Sojourner rover that. Uh, Uh, that NASA put on the surface of Mars in 1997, I think, if I remember rightly. Uh, Six wheels, uh, a couple of large solar panels on it to to give it power and festooned, of course, as always, with uh, with, um, scientific equipment, uh, including one that's never been sent to the surface of Mars before, Um, and that is a magnetometer. Uh, Mars not having a a global magnetic field uh, is... Um, it, it's, it's never you know we've we've never had something on the surface that can that can measure the magnetic field but there is probably evidence locked up in the rocks of Mars of Mars's ancient magnetic field if it if indeed it had one uh and yeah. so gerong will be uh, one of the you know one of the uh, perhaps one of the milestones in our understanding of the planet Mars uh if it um if it manages to uh uh, measure a magnetic field and tell us a little bit about the magnetic history of the planet. It's great mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, I think the other
0: thing they're uh, also looking into is what happened. Uh Yeah, what not just the magnetic field, but the the planet as a whole. What what went wrong? Where did where did everything go? Why is it so uh, Why is it so yeah. desolate?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, a lot of those questions have been answered already in, ter- in terms of our understanding that's come from orbiters and landers on the surface. But there are still many, many details that we don't mm. understand. One of them is, you know, we, we all kind of believe that it's likely that at one stage in Mars's history, the Northern Hemisphere was covered with water, uh, which is why it's flat and almost featureless now compared with the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and but we don't know whether that was a, a, an ocean that lasted for tens of millions of years or whether it was just water that was relatively shallow and only lasted a short time or even whether it was a lake underneath a huge ice cap on mars that that it may you know it, m- mars may never have been the balmy warm and pleasant place that we think it might have been and certainly that the earth is uh, it may have had a it may have had an ice cap with water underneath it so Perhaps some of those answers will come from uh, it's, it's you know got the usual other stuff as well of uh, analytical equipment to look at rocks and things of that sort. It's not yeah. that far um, from Perseverance, uh, although certainly not within traveling distance. These things only do a few kilometers, uh, but it's yeah. in the same hemisphere and in a similar region, but Perseverance is in a much more interesting spot from the point of view of trying to detect evidence of past life on Mars. It looks
0: like yeah. the entire area is popular because when you when you look at them they've published a map on uh, one of the websites I'm looking at uh, that shows where all the landers have put down on Mars um in you know all the time we've been going there and uh you've got perseverance you've got uh jurong you've got viking 2 beagle 2 insight curiosity and not far away spirit they're all in that kind of vector aren't they
1: yeah they are yes that's right it's it's um it it's a it's a region of mars's surface uh that it's called uh, Utopia Planitia. And it, it, it's actually probably a giant impact crater from, you know, Mars's really early history. Uh, but mm-hmm. that's a region that's thought to be of geological interest on, uh, on the planet. Um, and that's why there's this, exactly as you've said, there's this cluster of, uh, when you look on the map of where things have been sent to land, including the ones that didn't quite make it, uh, there's a cluster of them around there.
0: Yeah, it, it, very true. Um, uh, a, a giant impact crater. So, are we
1: going to find dinosaur bones <laughs> as it a consequence be great? of that? Look, It <laughs> bo- uh, doesn't matter what kind of bone it was. A bone would be sensational. A bone
0: would be incredible. <laughs> yeah, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yes. Yeah, so, um, and um, who else is around there at the moment? That's just slipped my mind. Briefly. In,
1: in terms of... Um, active... Orbiting Mars. Oh, uh, th- there's an Indian spacecraft. Uh, that's there right. Is, yeah. um, of course, Hope, the uh, UAE spacecraft, Tianwen-1. That's three. Yep. There's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Um, mm. uh, there is uh, ExoMars, the European one. Um, I think that's five. And the other one is, what's it called? Um, Marvin. Marvin, the Atmospheric and that's <laughs> that's right. Atmospheric Probe, six of them. Yeah. It's almost <laughs> getting as polluted around Mars as it yeah. is here. Well, that's right. Uh, the, yes, that's a good point because there are inactive satellites as well, you know, um, mm. various ones that were uh, active in the early uh, years of the millennium, um, including some I can't remember <laughs> their names. <laughs> That's good stuff. And actually, um, I've I've left one out, in fact, because uh, Mars Express, the European um, ESO one, is there, is still active too. So, uh, that, yeah, we're up to seven, I think. I better do a proper count. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, and to think,
0: uh, you know, going back, what, 50 years or so, we were still trying to figure it all out, and here we are sort of whizzing around Mars like it's... um, you know, like, like Manhattan traffic.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, fingers crossed uh, for Jurong's for, for the seven minutes of terror that that spacecraft will also have to experience to get down onto the surface of Mars.
0: Yeah. Well, they proved they can put a rocket back on Earth. I mean, you know, that they did yeah, that the other right. day. And <laughs> did that end up landing in the
1: Indian Ocean? uh it was uh the maldives uh islands oh, were God. the nearest land for where it where it landed yeah but i've not seen any vision of it i, I suspect it was somewhere where there were no ships and no, no you know no nearby land and uh, of course it was uh daytime when that happened um actually it might have been small hours of the morning it was it was mm. yeah it was but it, 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 it obviously i certainly not seen any footage of any kind no, which is probably a good thing. I mean, you don't want something like
0: that landing in a populated area. Exactly. So.
1: That's right. Exactly.
0: Yes. Um, given that uh, the, the planet's surface is, what, 70% water, the odds were pretty good that it would miss. But um, yep. stranger things have happened, haven't Indeed they? They have, yeah. Okay. Uh, we will watch, of course, with interest, the, uh, the, the Chinese mission on Mars uh, with uh, Zhurong and uh, we'll... Uh, hopefully get some data from them real soon and be able to tell you what they've uh, what they've found this is the space nuts podcast andrew dunkley here with professor fred watson Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. just want to say hello to our patrons the people who put their money into the space nuts podcast Uh, Voluntarily. And we thank you very kindly for your generosity and your support of the Space Nuts podcast. And if you would like to become a patron, it's as simple as going to our website and clicking on the supporter button. And all the information you need to know is there, whether you want to do it through Patreon or Supercast or through PayPal as a one-off donation. Uh, It is certainly entirely up to you. Uh, as we keep uh, reminding you it's voluntary. But we, we want to ultimately become 100% reliant on our audience. So uh, to do that, we're going to need uh, somewhere around 1,000 patrons. So we're slowly building those numbers up. So uh, thank you if you've uh, chosen to support us in some small way. And it's not expensive, uh, but all the information you need is on our uh, website just click on the supporter button to find out more. The other way you can support us, of course, is through the um, the Space Nuts shop. A brand new book has popped up there this week, strangely enough, uh, as well as many other publications from, uh, from uh, our um, uh, colleagues within uh, the Space Nuts fraternity, one Fred Watson, uh, and there are a couple of others there as well. So check them out. And, of course, all our, uh, all our Space Nuts memorabilia as well on the Space Nuts shop. That's on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Now, Fred, let's uh, move on to the next topic. And scientists have discovered uh, a, a new phenomenon when it comes to aurora, uh, something that uh, they didn't know existed. And this has been dug up in in some old um, evidence, some old video. Now, <laughs> What makes me laugh is they're referring to this uh, this um, you know old video. It's two thousand and two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't get it through my head that stuff from two thousand and two is now considered old, but there it is. <laughs> that's that's where the video came. Uh, it's,
1: look, it's part of history. It's antique stuff. Is this? Um, it um, is now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is now. That's right. But it, it, it is uh, remarkable that <clears throat> that that we're still learning things about the aurora. Um, mm. the the and a part, partly, Andrew, it's due to the fact that we have the technology now. We've got modern, modern digital cameras that people can set up and do marvelous um, footage of uh, of auroral displays, and we see those all, all the time so if you look like looking at that kind of thing, which I do. Um, but uh, also, the other thing is that, <clears throat> like me. Um, as you know, I've led many uh, tours up to the northern Arctic to, to look at the aurora. And I think that's become much more of a, a, a commonplace thing. So a lot more people are going up to see the aurora borealis in the north. Uh, a lot more people go down to Tasmania to see the aurora australis in the south. And so more people are watching these phenomena. Yes,
0: and I'll, t- I'll tell you something, Fred. <coughs> one of my golf partners, uh, Darren, who um, I play with every Saturday, uh, took a, one of those Qantas flights to nowhere recently. Right. Yes, yep. And it took them down to Antarctica, and they got to see the Aurora Australis. Very good. While they that were flying be, down that there, be so you know. Yeah. Um, This has been a consequence of COVID-19 because the airlines have been hit so hard due to travel bans, they've had to diversify. And so um, airlines in Australia have been doing these flights to nowhere. So they were in the air for something like 10 hours to fly down there, have a look around and then fly back, uh, which is rather extraordinary. But, you know, that's a side note. But uh, they got to see the Aurora Australis.
1: But... it. it reflects the popularity of uh, hunting aurorae, mm. which um, you know used to be something that you only read about in books. Uh, and you and I have talked about some of the new phenomena that have been introduced. Um, there was one not long ago, which were kind of ripply aurorae, and then there were the Steves as well. I don't know whether you remember the Steves, um, which are now recognised as being a phenomenon related to aurorae, but not actually the same thing. So we've now got a new something quite new uh which comes from this old footage as you've said uh this work this research has come from scientists at the University of Calgary University of Iowa uh, and NASA too um they the the phenomenon is that uh, unlike many aurori uh, which which form curtains or and that 's exactly what they look like in the sky, or streamers across the sky um yeah. or sometimes uh, the the best ones are what they call a corona where the thing explodes above your head is it an extraordinary experience standing underneath something doing that um but yeah. there there is another well it's a well known uh, auroral phenomenon, and that is what's called the diffuse auroral glow, and it's basically an aurora. It's green, but it, it's spread fairly evenly across the sky. It's not. It's not uh, in these streamers and things. The new phenomenon is that uh, this footage revealed that within the diffuse glow. So, if you imagine this green glow over a large area of the sky, and suddenly a small chunk of it brightens up um and stays bright for a few minutes and then it disappears but where it was leaves a hole in the diffuse auroral glow it's just black underneath it's almost as though it's rubbed it out um, and that's why they've been called uh what they're calling them the de- um de- diffuse auroral diffuse auroral erasers because it's just like mm. using an eraser to to rub out the background aurora um and Basically, it's a mystery. Uh, the, uh, the These scientists who are well-versed in the field of auroral studies uh, have no idea what's causing them. Um, one of the um, astronomers at the University of Iowa says, it raises the question, are these a common phenomenon that has been overlooked or are they rare? Knowing they exist means there is a process that is creating them and it may be a process we haven't started to look at yet because we never knew they were happening until now. So uh, yeah it's great stuff and um you know it's uh, learning something else about our new, our own planet in fact let alone the rest of the universe is finding out what's going on up here so um so uh, it's we, the, we know what causes aurorae but
0: obviously yes, there are varying types and sometimes right. we don't understand why
1: certain things are happening to them uh, exactly the the um uh, the the the, the you know, the mechanisms of, of, of the aurora, even just the straightforward aurora that we understand, is fairly complex. Um, and it goes back, our understanding of it goes back to the turn of the 20th century when um, Christian Birkeland, a well-known Norwegian scientist who was a big hero of mine, he spent uh, the whole winter on top of a mountain which I've been very close to, uh, near Alta in uh, northern Norway. Um, this mountain's called Halde. He wintered out over there with a couple of colleagues, one of whom didn't survive because the winters are pretty serious up there. Um, but he was, he was the first to, to sort of really show that the aurora don't, that it doesn't touch the ground because before that people didn't know whether these mm. dancing lights actually start at the ground level. Um, and he also worked out that it was electrons from the sun that uh, actually did the trick, And but it was 50 years before anybody believed him or 50 years after his death. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're still learning. And uh, I think uh, this is one to watch. We might talk about this again, Andrew.
0: Okay, we'll keep an eye on
1: that one. Uh, let's uh, now
0: talk about um, uh, the proof that life related molecules can form in the vacuum of space. this is a, a new discovery as well
1: it 's a, it's a bit more subtle than that because we 've known uh, for a long time that these molecules form in the in the cold, dark clouds that are where solar systems start um, giant molecular yep. clouds uh, and so the, the particular one in question is is methanol for the nerds it's CH3OH sometimes known as methyl alcohol that's what they called it when I was at school um methanol yep. is certainly a precursor for life it, we have methyl, methanol in our bodies actually uh the uh, the um uh, it, it's one of the constituents of amino acids and prote- hence proteins things of that sort so it but it um, where it's been observed so far has always been in cold places. And cold is what you need for molecules to form uh, because uh, warming them up inside a star, for example, tends to shake the individual atoms apart and you, you don't see them. Uh, so uh, we've we've known for a long time. We see them in comets as well, which are, as you know, icy bodies. Um, but the new discovery, which comes from Alma, our old friend Alma, the Atacama large millimetre, uh, sub array up in the Chilean Andes. Uh, and this is work that's actually been done at uh, Leiden University, or Leiden, in uh, in the Netherlands. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the work is, um, and this is what makes it different, that they've observed uh, a warm region around a star, and it's what's called a protoplanetary disk, where you've got... Mm-hmm. Um, where you've got swirling dust and gas uh, out of which planets are forming. Our solar system looked like this 4.6 billion years ago, and we observe them elsewhere in space. So they've they've observed one of these warm planet-forming disks, but what they've found in it is methanol, and apparently methanol cannot form in this sort of warm environment. Uh, And so what they're saying uh, is the methanol has was actually formed somewhere else and that's not a surprise because that that's where the other places that we see it, these cold clouds. But the fact that it has found its way into a warm disk of gas around a star um, is what they're they quoting as saying it, it could give the development of life a flying start because it, it's there already, it's sort of in the mm. raw material that these planets might be made of and so uh, yeah that's why the um the, the, there's a lot of interest in this in this story um it it's i think it uh, it's, it's basically spurned these uh, researchers on to look um in even more detail in this protoplanetary disk because they're they're hoping that they might find other um oxygen containing uh, organic molecules um like dimethyl sorry dimethyl ether <laughs> it's hard to say some of these uh, and methyl formate and and acetaldehyde these are all chemicals that once again they you know they uh, as as they say they're key ingredients for prebiotic chemistry so really interesting stuff going on in our understanding of the these young solar systems and what they might contain
0: so, this would be another clue into how life might evolve in in a system like ours, for example. In the early days when we were, you know, just being mashed together, coming out of those cold climates of the, the universe and started to warm up, we'd already received the raw materials we needed to create life. Is that what this is suggesting?
1: Uh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Mm. The, 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 the raw materials. Excuse me. The raw materials are there from a very early stage in the in the formation of a solar system, uh, and that, yeah, that's interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. See, I told you. I knew it.
0: I've said all along that uh, I, I believe that the the stuff of life exists everywhere, and it's just a case of the environment being exactly right to make it flourish. Otherwise, it just floats around out there, being useless to itself. And I think that's
1: probably that's right. My- yeah. Mm. the the Dunkley yeah. theory of uh, of prebiotic yeah. chemistry, which is yeah, it's a good one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I dumbed it down real good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh dear, do sort of, right. lie. <laughs> well, you know,
0: it helps me. Uh, this is the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, Andrew Dunkley and of course Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, hello to our social media followers who are many. Uh, the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook is one such um, page that you can join. It's for people who are Space Nuts followers who want to talk to each other. It's run by um, the listeners themselves. So if you would like to join the 1,800-plus people who are already members of the Space Nuts podcast group, that's where you go. Just do a search in your Facebook search engine for Space Nuts Podcast Group. Of course, there's an official Space Nuts Podcast Facebook page as well, which uh, you can also follow, uh, or you can follow us on uh, YouTube. We, uh, we have a, um, a presence there, and you can not only listen but watch if you really want to <laughs> do that. Why would you want to look at us? I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, that that's an option. Uh, and plenty of other places that you can find us. Of course, we've got our own website, which I mentioned earlier as well. So um, plenty of places to find us. And as far as the podcast platforms are concerned, we're on everything. So whatever platform you use, you'll, uh, you'll probably find uh, the Space Nuts podcast there as well. Now, Fred, we have some questions to tackle. Uh, the first one is in text form. This comes from Doug. Hi, gents. This is Doug. How about that? I got it right. Uh, From uh, Whitby in Ontario, Canada. Thanks uh, very much for the show. It's been great uh, for helping maintain uh, maintain our relative sanity in the last uh, year or so. Yeah, I can understand that. I particularly enjoy listening during long walks with my dog, Hazel. Your show is just the right length. And of course, the content is very informative. Uh, My question is, If dark matter is, say, four to five times more prevalent than regular matter in the universe and only interacts via gravity, why doesn't it seem to have any effect on spacecraft navigation within the solar system if it's clumpy elsewhere or mostly found in galactic galactic halos? Uh, Thanks very much. Look forward to hearing your answer. Thank you, Doug. Uh, We don't get dark matter questions very often, Fred, do we? (laughs)
1: Uh, that's a good one, is look, this? <laughs> the,
0: the fact of the matter is that this is such a big mystery. People yeah. keep thinking of angles and, and ideas in regard to what could be going on. And obviously Doug's thought of something that doesn't stack up. And that's half the problem with this. It doesn't stack up.
1: Um, And uh, in fact, what, what we understand to be happening is exactly what Doug says, <laughs> uh, that it's it's only clumpy on very very large scales so if you think of um there being a background uh, in the solar system of this dark matter whatever it is these these subatomic particles whose identity are, is unknown and only reveals itself by the uh, gravitational effect that it has on other bodies um, if you if you imagine that spread perfectly evenly throughout the solar system, then you're not going to know it's there from looking at the way mm. uh, spacecraft behave, from looking at the way planets behave. All of that ties in absolutely completely with every T crossed and every I dotted with um, both Newtonian and higher gravitational densities, uh, Einsteinian or relativistic um, uh, gravitational Mechanics, it, it it all works perfectly. It fits perfectly, um, and that's why we haven't discovered this stuff by just looking in the solar system. So we sit probably within a very very uniform cloud of dark matter, and it's only uh, again as uh, as Doug mentions, when you get to the scale of the ga- the halos of galaxies, <clears throat> that you can start to see its distribution. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now I was um, involved. Um, a few years ago with some work. You might remember I used to be um, the project manager for the RAVE survey, the radial velocity experiment, uh, which is something that looked for um, measuring the velocities of stars as well as their chemical compositions and things like that. We did half a million stars in the end. It's brought to an end now. We finished in 2013. But um, one of the things that came out of that was the estimate that clumps of dark matter can't be any smaller than about a thousand light years across and that's partly from the kind of things that we've been talking about now that you know the the way the dynamics of stars operates so mm. um that is not it's not a firm answer but a uh, thousand light years was for a while being tossed around as the minimum size of a of a blob of dark matter and of course, um, you know our solar system. The scale is measured in light minutes, <laughs> so uh, it's it's a much a much smaller scale. So I think uh, exactly as Doug says, that's the answer. That we we only see it when when we look on the sc- on the scale of galaxies. Uh, the fact that galaxies have that the galaxies are probably <clears throat> immersed in these large halos of of dark matter, which might be lumpier on a scale of a thousand light years or so. Um, that is. Uh, that's what holds galaxies together. That's the point I was going to make because one of the reasons why we think dark matter is there is that galaxies don't rip themselves apart as they rotate Mm. uh, so that the dark matter halo is what holds them together. There might be clumps within that, as I said, probably no bigger, no smaller though than a 1,000 light years and they may even be much bigger than that. We really don't know too well. Yeah.
0: Do you think we'll ever crack it? Will there be a light bulb moment or or should I say a
1: black light moment? Yeah, <laughs> a dark light moment. Uh, yes, I think there will. Um, it, You know, there are two ways this could go. One is that the somewhere, you know, some physics experiment, and there are ones where there are hints of this, although it's highly disputed. Some physics experiment turns up uh, something that, says well the standard model doesn't account for this of particle physics there must be something else and that leads to an opening uh, where people start looking at energies in the in the particle physics spectrum where there might be something you it may well need something bigger and better than the than the large hadron collider because these whatever these particles are they're massive they're mm-hmm. they're, they're massive you know they outweigh normal particles by 5, five to 1 as Doug says um, so the that's one possibility that we might find a crack in our knowledge of physics, which opens up a new line of research, and then at the end of that rabbit hole, there is plunk! Oh, here it is! At last, we found them, axions or neutralinos or whatever they are that constitute yeah. dark matter. Or the other thing that might happen is, and people are still looking at this, you know, we might have been barking up the wrong tree altogether. The 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 um, Mond theory. Uh, modified Newtonian Dynamics, which was proposed back in the 1980s by Mordehai Milgram, at, I think Tel Aviv or one of those Israeli uh, universities, um, uh, he, he postulated that our understanding of, of mechanics is wrong, that, um, you know, force equals mass times acceleration doesn't work on large scales. There's a difference in there. Uh, and it, it, unfortunately, there are all kinds of chinks in, uh, in the Mon theory that is, which is why it's not widely accepted. Although I know at least one podcast listener who's doing a PhD on this. Uh, um, hi, Peter. So, uh, the, the, um, Uh, you know, there may well be something that opens up that says, yeah, we've just got it completely wrong. And you should realise that scientists are are open to that. Most scientists think it is a particle. But if some really strong piece of evidence came up, the scientific opinion would shift and suddenly we might be looking at, you know, new forms of acceleration or things that don't work uh, in in the way that we think they do. So... um, I'm sure we'll crack it, Andrew, but whether whether Space Nuts will still be going when we do, I don't know. <laughs> mm.
0: Well, I hope so.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. I hope so to, you know, a, a personal message, it's down to you, Peter. No pressure, it's down to you. <laughs> no pressure, Peter. No pressure at all. No. Peter Peter i uh, no, give a shout out to him. He's a former technician at um, Siding Spring Observatory now doing um, his PhD on modified Newtonian dynamics. Mm.
0: Well, it, you know, it's it's a good thing that science and scientists and astronomers and particle physicists are flexible because if we weren't, we'd still be making tools out of stone, I imagine, <laughs> because we we'd, yeah. we wouldn't change our minds about
1: anything. That's right. Yeah.
0: Mm. All right. uh, Appreciate the question. Uh, Thank you, uh, Doug, wasn't it? Doug in Ontario. Uh, Let's now go to Sandy in Victoria, who's got a question which on the surface might sound like it comes from the very centre of the planet geekdom, but (laughs) it's quite interesting. Hi, Andrew and Fred. It's Sandy here from Victoria again. Thank you for answering my last question. Although I didn't explain it well, you understood what I was trying to say and answer the question, so thank you. To my new question, I have an interest in telescopes and astrophotography, and my question is related to telescope mounts. The German equatorial mount is the preferred mount favoured by many hobby astrophotographers. However, when I was reading about a few of the large professional telescopes like the VLT, they all seem to sit on top of an Altaz mount. Why is that? Is it simply due to their size? Thank you. Oh uh, yes, I thought there was more. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Sandy. And the answer is yes, and that's all we have time <laughs> for this week. It is.
1: The answer is yes. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, it is. So, but um, look, we should unpick this a little bit for people who've no idea I think what so. we're talking about. Um, so, uh, when you when you have a telescope looking at the sky, uh, normally in, in the lower price range of telescopes. Uh, although that's changed quite a lot but let me put it this way um you you mounted them on what's called an altazimuth mount uh, often shortened to an altaz as uh, as um uh, as sandy says so um what does that do? Well, it's an, it just lets you move the telescope up and down or side to side. It's like a theodolite. So it's, you know mm-hmm. the, the, the two axes are, one is vertical and one is horizontal. It's as simple as that. And that's great. I mean, it's very, very convenient when it's well made. But uh, for uh, the most basic kinds of telescopes, um, it means that when you try and track an object through the sky... Uh, you're basically moving it in steps. And um, I've spent many, many hours with groups of people um, looking through an Altazimuth telescope. And what you have to do is uh, they they look through the eyepiece and say, oh, ah, that's fantastic. The next person comes and has a look and says, I can't see anything. And it's because the objects move because the Earth's rotating. And so um, then you've got to fiddle around with these steps. Um, And it was a long time ago, actually. um, I think the first what's called an equatorial mounting, goes back to Christoph Scheiner, who was a contemporary of Galileo's in the uh, 17th century. Um, If you mount a telescope, if you build a mounting, so that instead of one of the axes being vertical, it's tilted over at the angle of latitude where you are, then it becomes parallel to the Earth's axis. And you've got this really neat trick that as the Earth rotates... Uh, underneath you, all you've got to do is rotate your telescope about this axis, and it follows the stars perfectly. Uh, and that's called an equatorial mounting. And if you've got the high-end version of that, then you have a, a what's called a clock drive, even though these days it's a, an electric motor, that drives it so that it exactly matches the Earth's rotation and the field of view is stationary. And that's what you need for photography, of course, because you're... Uh, exposures might last three, four, 10, 15, or in our case, in the olden days of photography, 60 minutes. Um, and you want to be able to track uh, without the telescope uh, you know, having to be moved. Now, um, things have changed in the modern era. Uh, let me just mention, though, that until the 1980s, all big telescopes were built, actually the 1970s is probably a better way to put it, all big telescopes were built on an equatorial mounting. That means one with this axis tilted over. And that's why the Anglo-Australian Telescope, where I used to work, uh, it's it's a fork mounting, but the whole thing's tilted over at this curious angle of 30, 31 degrees or thereabouts, which is the latitude angle of, of Siding Spring. Um, it, it was only in the 70s, and actually the russians pioneered this with their large telescope in um I've forgotten where it is Zelenchukskaya. skaya that's the name of the place um they pioneered this because computers could suddenly do this compensation if you, an altazimuth is much easier to build uh, you know the, the everything's vertical You've got one vertical axis, the whole thing's not tilted over at some funny angle. And that makes the mechanics of it much more straightforward uh, from a structural point of view. So once computers have got to the stage where they could work out where you have to go with an altazimuth telescope, one that moves up and down and side to side, and then you could do it in tiny little steps so that the whole thing looks as though it's just following the stars. And that's how all big telescopes are built now. It's purely a size consideration. We have the computer technology to do it uh, and um, and makes the mechanics much easier. Now, that has also spread downwards to the a- amateur field. So a lot of modern-day telescopes are on a computer-controlled altazimuth mount. Um, many, many of them are. So why don't we use that for photography? Why do people like the equatorial mount better? Uh, The answer is that if you're doing photography with an altazimuth telescope, even though it's got a Swish computer control, you've got a problem in that the field of view seems to rotate and that doesn't happen with an equatorial. So um, your stars, yes, you're tracking on the stars, you're tracking on the centre of the field of view, but the field is actually rotating very slowly around that. And If you didn't do anything about it, you get lovely pictures with all the stars as little curves um, centred around the centre. So that's why um, in small telescopes, the equatorial mounts are still preferred. Um, Sandy mentioned the German equatorial mount. That's a particular name for one that has uh, a counterweight uh, balancing the weight of the telescope. And it was invented by Josef Fraunhofer back in 18. 18- 08 or thereabouts, uh, the the great Dorpat refractor, which is a beautiful old telescope that I've seen. Uh, It's in uh, Estonia. Uh, That was the first of these mountings. And because it was built by a German scientist, he was in Munich, in fact, it was Fraunhofer. uh, It's called a German equatorial. It's the most common form. So that's the bottom line with all this. Big telescopes, yeah, use computers, smaller telescopes can, but you've got to work out how to rotate the field of view and it's easier to use a German equatorial for photography. There you go. Da da
0: <laughs> Answered and or asked and answered, Sandy, as I say. And um yeah, great question. and, and something a little bit different for us to tackle yep. this week because um yeah, we we we, we certainly um like to tackle questions from all kinds of angles, and, and that one had a lot of angles in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, uh, but thanks again, Sandy, and thanks, Doug, for uh, sending in your questions. Greatly appreciated. And, of course, if you have questions for us, you can send them to us via our website, com, and click on the AMA link at the top of the screen, and that's where you'll find our email interface where you can you know do the old-fashioned email thing and type your question in with a keyboard or you can um, use a recorder. If you've got a device with a uh, uh, microphone built in, like a mobile phone or a computer or a... um, um, tablet or something like that you can just click on the record button and say hi i'm fred from sydney and i want to know uh, the name of andrew's new book and where i can buy it Um, we will broadcast that question to the entire globe over and over again Uh, but no that's how you do it just click on the ama tab and uh, you can uh, send us your question there in whatever form you so desire Uh, we look forward to hearing from you And that brings us to the end, Fred, and uh, thank you again as always. Oh, by the way, there's a new book available. (laughs) I'll stop there. Uh, Thanks, Fred. It's been fun as always.
1: We'll talk next week um, and I look forward to it very much, Andrew, as always. See you soon.
0: Bye-bye. Fred Watson, astronomer at large here on Space Nuts. Thanks to Hugh in the studio for pushing all the buttons and sending out all the uh, the, the notifications and uh, putting the whole thing together with sticky tape and plasticine and sometimes super glue, which is probably going to be required today. Uh, From me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening and or watching and we'll catch you on the next episode of Space Nuts.